If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, I'm delighted to be talking with a woman I have admired for a very, very long time, Andrea Kilstead. Quite literally, Andrea wrote the book on capital campaigns. She's the author of Capital Campaigns, Strategies That Work, now in its fourth edition. She's been leading successful capital campaigns for more than 30 years. She's also author of How to Raise a Million Dollars or More in 10 Bite-Sized Steps and several other amazing books about fundraising and board development. Andrea co-founded Capital Campaign Masters and the Capital Campaign Toolkit alongside Amy Eisenstein. I'm very proud to have recently joined Capital Campaign Toolkit as an advisor, in addition to the portfolio of work that I do through my company, Fundraising Transformed. I could go on and on about this incredible woman, but I want you to hear directly from her. So Andrea, welcome to the show. Support for this show is brought to you by Bloomerang. Our friends at Bloomerang really understand fundraisers, which is why they make donor management and online fundraising software that nonprofits love to use. To learn more and to join them in their vision of building a world inspired by giving, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional fundraiser. Thank you so much, Tammy. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. I admire you for a bunch of years also. Well, thank you. That means quite a lot to me. All right, so let's just jump right in. Andrea, tell us how you got started in fundraising and what have been some of your career highlights? It is a long story, but I won't tell it in its long form. Uh, the, the simple truth is that when I was in my 30s, I have been working for a consultant who did urban development consulting, which was really a very interesting job. And we worked in organizations where we pulled together leadership groups and we created confidence among those leadership groups and got them to invest in their communities. Now, it was a pretty interesting job. And I learned in that job that I could talk to people who had great power in their communities and that mostly they would listen to me and that I could be in that conversation. That was that was very empowering for me. And I, the job went sour. And it went sour, unfortunately, because the person I was working with had a drinking problem. And that got worse until one day I came home and I said to my husband, I think I'm finished with this. I can't do this anymore. He said, why don't you go talk to the person who heads up the fundraising program at the college where I worked? I said, all right, I will. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. I went and talked to him. That was a gentleman I had known, uh, known a little. And he said, you know, it's funny. I said, you know, I know a lot about consulting. I've been a consultant for a long time. I don't know anything about fundraising. 
He said, well, it's funny that you come to me now because I'm getting ready to leave the college to start a consulting business. Why don't you come and work with me and you can teach me about consulting and I'll teach you about fundraising. And that is the long and short story about how I got into fundraising consulting. Incredible. That's that's a fairly unconventional way to get into this business because you may have noticed that it jumps right over having ever worked in a fundraising shop. (laughs) And yet you've been so incredibly successful. It truly is remarkable. So over the course of those 30 years, Andrea, I know this is a tough question to answer, I suspect. What have been some career highlights? Yeah, so I've had, of course, a bunch of career highlights. Some of them have to do with opportunities. And I say this in the hopes that the people who are listening will take a page out of my book. So I'm actually good at a few things. I'm not good at everything, but I'm good at a few things. One of the things I'm good at is saying yes, right? That when given opportunities to do things, that even if they make me uncomfortable and anxious and I'm not sure I know how to do them, my default is to say yes, And then I figure, all right, once I've said yes, then I'll figure it out, right? Then I'll find ways. I'll find people to help me. I'll find resources. I'll I'll learn enough. I'll be able to do it. And I have done that again and again in in my life. And I found that that default of saying yes before I say no, right, really, really helps me. So one of the moments is when fairly early in my career, I don't think I'd been in the capital campaign business more than six or seven years, I had done a few campaigns, a few small, difficult, successful campaigns. Somebody came to me and said, gee, we're doing a series of books on fundraising. And one of them is going to be on capital campaigns. And we have someone who's going to be an author, but she doesn't really know enough about capital campaigns. Would you co-author that book with her? And I thought to myself, well, I'm not sure I know a whole lot more about capital campaigns than she does, (laughs) but if they're going to offer me this gig, I'm going to say, you got it. Yes. Right. And I'm actually going to do that. And I did. And it, I mean, it was a huge undertaking. And out of that undertaking came the book, Capital Campaigns, Strategies That Work, which is not the book you referenced earlier. That actually is a big book on capital campaigns. And it has now, 30 some odd years later, gone through four editions. And as I suspect the best-selling book on capital campaigns in on the market, I continue to get royalty checks, much to my astonishment. After the first edition of it, the original woman, it turns out she really didn't know about capital campaigns. So she faded away. And I took over the book and I learned more from having to write that book. I mean, that's where I got my chops, my fundraising chops, because you have to you have to know what you're doing to write a big book on a subject. Indeed. And that book, it really has been for my career, my go to reference on all things related capital. I can take credit for those royalty checks because I've bought multiple copies. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was a, that was really a very challenging time. It was, it was exciting and fun. I had a lot of people that I went to for help and advice to read chapters, to tell me where I was going wrong. I mean, I did not sit down and write that all by myself. I invited people to help me. I put my questions out there. I said, yes, I'll do this. And then I set about asking people for for their help, and they were wonderful in being able to help. 
So that book actually set up pretty much everything else I got to do in my career, right? Incredible. Because you had the confidence to say yes and know that everything is figure outable. That's right. That's right. I really am a basic. Thank you, Marie Forleo. I really am. I am a believer in the notion that everything is figure outable. If you're willing to say yes, and then you're willing to ask people for help, if you're willing to admit that you may not know it all, it's amazing what comes to you from that point of view, right? And that's that's true. Most everything is true of capital campaigns, right? That if you if you say, okay, we're going to do a capital campaign, now let me let me go and get some help. Now let me go and talk to some people about what we should do to make this successful. That's what creates the success of your campaign. So I see this not so much about my book, but because it's a mindset that I think is incredibly useful. And, and many of us, and for good reason, are hesitate to do that. We're afraid that we're going to fail. We're afraid that that we might not look good. We're afraid that you know, it might not go quite right. And once you get past that, once you realize that that if you say yes and, gee, will you help me figure this out? The world tends to open up. It tends to be a generous place. That's just, for me, it was a remarkable lesson. It has, mm-hmm. has served me well. Well, and, and thank you for sharing it because I agree. I think sometimes, certainly as consultants, But for more of our listeners as fundraising professionals, we do feel like we have to have all the answers so often. And there's such power in saying, I don't know, but I have many resources and I can find out. Or even turning the question like, well, I'm interested in what you think about that. Right? Right? Yeah. So good, Andrea. Thank you. So I want to move on. Your LinkedIn bio says, and this is a direct quote, my restless mind keeps me coming up with new ways to do old things, end quote. <laughs> I love that. So tell us how your restless mind has manifested innovation in the major gift and capital campaign space. Sure. Thank you. So, so you know, restless mind sounds wonderful, right? It, having no tolerance, I get getting bored easily doesn't sound so, doesn't sound so good. There are some of us who are always drawn to the bright, new, shiny thing, and that's not always good, right? It's just uh, this is not tuning my own horn. It's not always good that I'm always drawn to new ideas. You know, I there are some times when I would be very happy to be able to really settle into something and look at something, take it to a deeper level. But it's not the way I'm wired. Some people are wired to do that. And some of us aren't wired to do that. So, uh, you know, you don't get to choose some the way you are in some, in some ways. You can fight it. But I found that it's better to go with who you are. And I, I always like, I really enjoy thinking. That sounds silly. But I, but I enjoy thinking about, about new ways to do things. And, uh, you know, I was a traditional capital campaign consultant for, for a bunch of years. I had a whole lot of clients in one, in one region and I was quite successful at it. And uh, I remember sort of being in the, in the office of donors doing feasibility study interviews and thinking to myself, you know, something's not right about this. Here I am, the consultant talking to these most influential donors in this community, in this region. 
And we're talking about an organization that's hired me to do these interviews. And they're telling me things that may not think we're so terrific about that organization. We're talking about the challenges within that organization, maybe challenges having to do with leadership or whatever, you know, whatever isn't quite going right. Now, every organization has stuff that isn't going right, right? If you're out there doing the work, not everything is going right, right? That's, it's just not the way things happen. Nature of the beast. The nature of the beast. So I would be sitting there in these interviews thinking, well, these are fun interviews. I've gotten to know these donors well over the years, but this is not where this conversation should be happening. Conversation should be happening between the leader of the organization and the major donors, right? And I was, I was sort of aware of that. I was uncomfortable about what was going on. Now, I watched that for a while. And if you're a capital campaign consultant over a lot of years, you often become friends with people who are major donors. You develop some fr- some good friendships in that because you go back to them again and again. It's just, it's just the nature of what happens. So one day I got a call from a friend of mine, a wealthy friend of mine who's a major donor. She said, you know, Andrea, she said, I'm just tired of these consultant types coming to my door having these feasibility study interviews, you're always thinking about new ways to do things. Why in heaven's name don't you do something about this? This isn't a good model, right? Straight from their mouth. Straight from her mouth, right? I thought, all right, my friend is calling me up telling me this. I have long thought this as I've been doing these interviews. It's time to make a change. So as is typical my way, At the time, my project was Capital Campaign Masters, which had been Capital Campaign Magic, and I was writing a lot on that blog. So I sat down and I wrote a blog post about what would happen if instead of having consultants go and do the interviews, the head of the organization went and did the interviews. And I wrote this blog post about why that would be better, right? Now, of course, I hadn't thought it through very well yet. I mean, this is typical. You see, I'm saying yes and then I didn't know what I was doing, right? I didn't know how to do it. I didn't. I wrote a blog post. I started getting calls from people saying, gee, we like this idea. Won't you be our consultant? You know, won't you help us do this? But I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but you knew you could. But I knew it out. I just kept noodling this problem of how to, how to figure that out, right? Because it's not as simple as executive director is just going and talking to donors. There needs to be a structure. There needs to be a report. Somebody needs to give the report that makes the board feel confident. And if the executive director is pushing the project, you know, because that's what they want to do, then the board isn't going to have confidence unless there is some other factor involved. So it took some time to figure out a model that combined the the work of a consulting firm the expertise of a consulting firm with the leadership of the organization doing the interviews into a structure that would give the same kind of confidence, but would be a transparent structure where everyone would know, where the leadership would know what was said in the interviews, the donors would know, would have an opportunity to talk to the leaders about the things that they liked and didn't like about the organization. And the board would feel as though someone who was experienced in the field would put their seal of approval on the results of the study. So it started out as a simple idea, which is 
the person talking to these donors should be the head of the organization. That's the simple idea. Eventually grew into a system that actually combined the expertise of consultants with the experiential conversations of the leaders. And now, this is fast forward a bunch of years, we have now tested it well. We know it works. We've done nearly 30 of them with different people, different people from our shop leading them. And it turns out that it is better than I ever would have imagined in that early day when my friend called me and said, hey, isn't it time to change this model? And I said, yes, as, as given what I do. So that's that's an example of, you know, my mind was restless. I was already wanting to make a change, but I didn't know how to do it. And I was I didn't know how to move until someone called and said, all right, you should figure this out. Wow. Very powerful. You know, I think that the traditional thinking has always been that donors will hold back, that they won't be as transparent with staff or that executive, and that they're somehow more forthright with a consultant. I can say from my own experience as a fundraiser, my donors often give me an earful, right? Like they would yes. they really didn't hold back. And right. and I think that that really speaks to what we know about good fundraising and that it is relationship centric. Right. Right. And in those relationships people will open up and they will share. And and obviously your work on this guided feasibility study has proven that to be very true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've learned several things along the way that I hadn't thought about before. One of them is that for a consultant to ask a donor about the things that they think are wrong with the organization, the problems that they think exist, raises problems that then have nowhere to be resolved because the consultant has done that under the guise of confidentiality. So if you're a donor and I say to you, okay, Tammy, what are the problems you see with organization X, Y, Z? And you say, well, I don't like the way they do this. And I I say, you know, I will not share this directly back with the executive director of the organization. And you tell me, you know, I think about this as a problem. That has nowhere to go to be resolved. I, as the consultant, can't go back and say, gee, Tammy doesn't like this about your organization. You should have a conversation with her. So, in fact, what I've come to understand that it causes more harm than good that far better is when the executive director says to the donor, gee, Tammy, you know, there are some things that, that I think are terrific about this organization. I know you like them as well, but there are some things that are problematic, right? Here's something that troubles me. What, what do you think are the problems we should be wrestling with? You'll be delighted that I asked you. Absolutely. And that we're open and that we can respond yes. or add additional context. Right. Or right. to your point, That's right. move move those forward. Yeah. So good. You know, Andrea, it's interesting to me that you and Amy, Amy Eisenstein, your partner, began offering virtual capital campaign consulting services years before the pandemic arrived. I mean, it was really quite visionary. So how did you imagine that? And how was it embraced in the beginning? And how do you find that it's being adopted by the nonprofit community now? Yes, yes. Thank you for that for that question. I'm looking here for a book that really was influential in that. I can't see it offhand on my bookshelf. But here's what happened. You know, as the internet became the way we all did business, and we started to do things with Zoom or other 
you know, there were what Google groups and there were a whole bunch of other ways, ways Web, to do it. WebEx and WebEx, all those yes. things, you know, that we used to do. It raised again in my mind, this question that I had had for a bunch of years. And the question had always been this. I never understood what consultants did when they traveled a fairly long way to go to their clients. And then they had a whole day with their clients. And honestly, I never understood what they did that was valuable for a whole day. From my take, you could accomplish a whole lot in a few meetings. Didn't need a whole day. All of a sudden you showed up and the person responsible, the development director or whoever was working with the consultant had to account for that whole day, had to make a lunch meeting, had to make a breakfast meeting, had to set up this meeting and that meeting. And it became more about, well, how do we keep this consultant busy right, for the day because they're here because we've paid for them to be here. Yes. And it was about, well, what really is the work that needs to be done and how much time do we really need to do it? So that had been the idea that had been niggling at me, that that model was not right. And then when we started playing with this ability to work virtually, where we could see one another and we could easily come together, I thought, gee, I'll bet you could run a whole consulting practice this way. I thought, you know, why not try it? And I actually contacted Amy. I said, you know, Amy, why don't we create an online resource for capital campaigns, which we did. We have a wonderful online toolkit of 130 or 140 downloadable documents. And why don't we combine it with virtual advising where people can have an advisor, but they don't meet in person unless there's a special, you know, special thing that's happening. But I bet we could provide every bit as good quality, if not better, right? And Amy said, that's a good idea. And then somebody gave me a book, which talked about the transformation of the professions. It wasn't about capital campaign, the profession of capital campaigns. It was about professions like accounting and legal and medical and all of the other professions. A profession is where someone has a specific expertise and you share it with clients for a, a certain amount of money, right? That's, there are many professions. So this book, this British father and son team, social scientists wrote a book on that, on what was happening as these various professions adopted the internet, adopted virtual technology to do their business. And I started seeing things like legal zoom or, QuickBooks or sure, telehealth or telehealth or right. I mean, it was like, oh, look at that. These are all professions. The capital campaign business is a profession. Why don't we let us bring this profession into the 21st century or almost the 22nd century? Let us let us actually make this work. Let's try it out. Brilliant. And at first, people would scratch their heads. They were saying, Are you sure you can do this? Right. And we you know, we had a few takers and we started doing it successfully. And then came COVID. Our friends at Bloomerang know the importance of year-end fundraising to a nonprofit's longevity and success throughout the year. We know that 50% of nonprofits receive a majority of their annual contributions from October to December. 
To learn how you can make the most of this giving season, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser to get your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips. And that, of course, changed everything because all of a sudden everybody was doing business this way. It was no longer a question of whether you could do business this way. Right. But you had already gotten through your learning curve. That's right. That's right. We already knew how to do it. And there was a lot to learn, right? You have to learn how to facilitate meetings this way. You have to learn how to communicate before and after meetings this way. Yeah, I mean, there is there is a bunch to learn about doing it. But the reality is that today... It has to be a special occasion to go be in person with someone. I mean, who wants to spend the time and effort and energy for that? Yeah, it really is more efficient, right? There's less travel, so it's also less costly. Right. It's easier on the environment. Yeah. Right? Airplanes, automobiles, all those right. things. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just a uh... You know, honestly, I have I have developed many friendships of of people all over the country right? And in Canada, where I we've never met in person, but if I'm ever in Toronto, I've developed some friendships in Toronto. If I'm ever in Toronto, I'm going to get in touch with these people. We're going to go have a glass of wine or a cup of coffee together. Yes. Yes. I feel like I had a sense sense of who they are. They know who I am. Well, and you've built trust. Right. Right. You've you've got a common goal. I totally agree. As you know, I just came back from the nonprofit storytelling conference and I'm met people there that I had never met in real life. And, you know, I would say, or they would say like, I know you so well, can I give you a hug? Like, nice to meet you. Can I give you a hug? Give you a hug, right, right. <laughs> because this virtual yes. world, it really, they are true relationships. We just yeah. haven't been in the same physical space. Right. Yeah. There are a couple of other things that it does that just Tease, tickle me. You know, one is going back to this, all right, having having traveled for four hours to get someplace, you know, or even for two hours to get someplace and two hours home, you have this whole block of time. Well, with Zoom, you don't have to do that. If our business is going to take 30 minutes together, we'll spend 30 minutes. If you need me tomorrow for 20 minutes, we'll grab 20 minutes. You know, you get me when you need me as a consultant, not when I happen to show up because it fits my schedule to show up. So all of a sudden the work becomes on your timetable, not on my the consultant's timetable. And you can get immediate response through email or through a quick face, you know, face-to-face as needed. It's a much more, not only efficient, it's a much more effective way of doing work because it naturally follows the flow of what the client needs rather than what the consultant's schedule is. Mm-hmm. And we all know scheduling can be the biggest barrier That's right. to, That's right. yeah, to productivity. Wow. Really, really brilliant. So Andrea, over the course of 30 plus years in fundraising, I know you have seen many capital campaigns that have weathered some challenging economic times. So now as we're looking at inflation that's at a 40-year high, an emerging recession. What's your best advice for nonprofit organizations that are currently in a capital campaign or contemplating a capital campaign? Right. Let me let me talk about people who are in campaigns first. I think you can reasonably expect some of your donors to be anxious. Right? And 
some of your donors have made pledges, made gifts that are going to be pledged out over, over time, and all of a sudden their portfolios might look different. So you should be attuned to that and talk to your donors about whether they let them know there is flexibility in the payment schedule. Right. I mean, one of our advisors in the toolkit tells the story about when she was the executive director of an organization. They had done a big capital, successful capital campaign. It was the the market crash in what was that, 2008, right? Yeah, right. And she said the the construction action for the building wasn't scheduled to start for a while. So she called each of her largest donors and said, you know, I know you may be feeling anxious. And, you know, if you would like not to make your next pledge payments, that's okay with us. We don't actually need your money because our construction isn't going to start for that. Let us redo your payment schedule, right? However, we just want to work with you on this. She said some of the people made their payments as pledged. Some of them delayed their pledge payments. And she earned more trust with her donors than she had ever had before. That it was that round of phone calls was just terrific. So if you're in a campaign, be sure you get in your donors framework and call your donors, talk to them about it, see where they are, see how they are. For some of them, it may not make a difference, right? May make no difference at all. For some of them, it may make a difference. But by all means, be in touch with the people who have made those largest gifts to your campaign. Yeah. I mean, it says so much. Like, you're more than just a gift. We feel you right now. We're flexible. That's right. We want this to work for you as well. That's right. So good. Most most capital campaigns have some kind of bridge funding anyway to cover the period of time over which they'll be bringing in their pledges. So you probably have some financial flexibility you know, to accommodate that. But in any case, ramp up your conversations with people who have already given, not just the people who are going to give, right? (laughs) Don't, Don't toss them away. So that's number one piece of advice. Number two piece of advice is talk to people about it, how they're feeling. When you're soliciting a gift, find out if it's, you know, how they're feeling, what their prognosis is, if it makes them nervous. If, you know, if you should, how you should be approaching a gift from them, if they would be willing to make a smaller gift and you can come back to them at a later time when the market has stabilized. So just acknowledge what's going on and find out what's going on with them. Do not, do not stop asking people for money. Amen. Don't stop, (laughs) right? What we see again and again is people that stop fundraising, stop raising money. I mean, it's like, it's, and it always amuses me, you know, that boards get nervous and squirrely and they say, oh, we can't ask people for money in these times. Everything is too, you know, up in the air. And then they stop asking, they delay, they put their campaign on pause and guess what? Their campaign doesn't raise any money. And then what do they say? They say, you see, it, it was the time to ask because our money went down, right? I mean, they it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so don't stop. The other thing that I have to say is this cycles. Everything goes through cycles, right? If you're as old as I am, and I'm old, you've seen a whole bunch of economic cycles. And what goes down comes up, and what goes up comes down, and there are relatively predictable cyclical patterns to these things. 
your campaign is also cyclical, right? Your campaign will also take a bunch of years. It will probably take at least three years, maybe five years, right? So if you look at the cycle, at the, at the economic cycle, and you look at, the, at your campaign cycle, it may be that right now, as the world is looking a little precarious, is the perfect time to be planning your campaign. Because by the time you're really ready to go and start soliciting gifts, the economy is going to start to be moving up again. And you're going to be ready to catch that wave. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Great advice. And so, I mean, I'm hearing this trend as well. Like it's, yes, preparedness, but also talking to your donors. Just talk to them. Regardless of whether you're in a campaign or contemplating a campaign, talk to them. Yeah, they're just people. You know, it's it's so tempting to think that people who have wealth are somehow different, right? And they may be more protective and feel protected because so many people come to them. But underneath, they're just people like you and like me and like everybody else. Yeah. And, you know, if you can kind of understand who they are and, and see them as partners, right? Gail Perry used to say this. Right. You, you should see your, your donors as partners, not pockets. Yeah, absolutely. That was a great phrase. Right. Yeah. And it's hard for us to get out of the pocket mentality sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dr. Jen Sheng also says, of course, don't focus on the money, focus on the people. Right. 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 It's, it's, the, it's the same, really, yeah, truly same, the same message. The same idea. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, what's funny, we, I was just gave a keynote at the nonprofit storytelling conference on the features and the shadow side of donor centricity and community centric fundraising. And one of the challenges or the shadow sides of donor centricity is there's a power dynamic. And sometimes we won't talk to donors, we won't push back and have you know, courageous conversations with them. And that's why that pendulum can swing too far. And we start giving donors leeway to how we do our programs or excess decision-making or influence. But we did that. We let 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 that that happen. Yes, yes, exactly. We let that happen. Yeah. We don't have to let that happen, right? We really don't. We really don't. We can be in conversation with people. People do change their minds. I mean, particularly today when the world feels so polarized, it feels like nobody changes their minds. But the reality is people, when you are willing to be in conversation with people, that's when you have an opportunity to find common ground. And it's hard for people to remember that that even, even if you're talking to people of great wealth, your job is to be talking to them to find common ground. Yes. So that they understand better the people you serve, right? And the way you serve them. And you understand better what they're thinking and what their perspective is. And if you do that, if you keep talking, just keep talking. Sometimes I think that's the most important thing in the world. You just need to stay in conversations with people. It doesn't necessarily resolve in a five-minute conversation. It resolves over time. And I mean, I encourage everyone actually to have a broad enough circle of contacts and colleagues and friends and social connections of people who don't think the way you think, of people who don't live the way you live, of people who don't look the way you look. 
And when you do that, you get practiced at having those conversations. You get skilled. They don't feel so scary anymore. Yeah. And ultimately, I think they become so much more interesting. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly right. So good, Andrea. At the end of each episode, I'd like to ask a few rapid fire questions just to give a little extra value to our listeners. So I have a few for you if you're if you're ready. I'm ready. All right. First question. What's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? Well, it's hard for me to say the best fundraising advice, but I'm going to give you the most recent fundraising advice that struck me as being a terrific piece of advice. And it comes from a friend of mine who is a fundraiser in Alaska. She is a remarkably talented fundraiser. She's just fantastic. And I had breakfast with her just recently. And she's been raising a ton of money. She's one of our toolkit clients, is working with one of our advisors. And I, I said to her, gee, you know, how, how are you doing this? Right? I'm not surprised you're a great fundraiser, but what's your magic this time? She said, you know, Andrea, she said, I've stopped asking and I've started fishing. <laughs> started fishing? That's exactly what I said. Started fishing. What do you mean fishing? Right? Well, it turns out that some of the powerful people and wealthy people in her community have, have annual fishing events where they actually get together, right, and go fishing, right? And she said, you know, she said, I decided that it would be a really good opportunity, good idea to get involved in this fishing event because you sit in a boat all day with people, right, fishing, and you get a chance to talk to them about what they want, what they're mm-hmm. looking to do, what their organization is looking to do. And that gave me a chance to figure out how my organization could help them do that. I thought, what a wonderful way to think about fundraising. Stop asking and start fishing for what it is people want to make happen. And literally and do that, right? It's a wonderful piece of advice. Stop asking, start fishing. Now I love it. Friend, it was literal. She really was talking about fishing. But it doesn't have to be literal, literal. <laughs> I love that. But you're so right. I mean, anytime we can really be in community with our donors, we deepen those relationships. We have more opportunities to listen and to understand what they want and to be that matchmaker. Yes. And boy, when you do that, when you're not just asking for money, when you really are finding a way that their money can invest in something they want to have happen right? When you understand them well enough to know what that real exchange is, not the financial exchange, but the other exchange, the the mission exchange, yeah. right? then you can raise a ton of money. Wonderful. Uh, next question. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? So I recommend that people read broadly. I recommend that you read all the time and not just about fundraising. There are a great many fundraising books on the market Many of them are terrific. I mean, some of Jerry Panis's books are terrific. My partner, Amy Eisenstein, writes terrific books. Tom Ahern and Simone um, have written some amazing books. All of those are terrific. They're all great resources. But I would encourage you to make yourself an interesting person by reading broadly so that when you meet with your donors, you in fact can share other things. I mean, one of my favorite books these days is something, a novel called The Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Towles. 
It's a totally amazing novel. It's an amazing novel about the period after the Russian Revolution. There is nothing directly relating to fundraising about in that book, only it makes me more interesting to have read it, right? It makes, gives me other things to call on. So go see great movies, go to theater, listen to great podcasts. You know, if you want to listen to story podcasts, I'm in the middle of listening to, to Rachel Maddow's new podcast, Ultra, which is about American history going back. It's fascinating. All of that makes makes a fundraiser interesting. It gives you fodder for having interesting conversations with your donors. So read beyond the field. I love that. And I think it, I'm sure, makes people feel more confident when they are in donor networking situations or meetings. So good. Andrea, what do you think are the three most important traits a successful fundraising professional must possess? Optimism, persistence, and honesty. Mm, Very good. Very good. What's your favorite fundraising tool or application? Well, in the capital campaign business, you have to say the gift range chart. (laughs) Yeah. That's the basis of every capital campaign. Somebody once told me early on that this was the basis and I scratched my head. I couldn't quite believe it. And after all these years, he was exactly right. Mm-hmm. It's the basis of every accessible capital campaign. Absolutely. What's your favorite conference or ongoing learning opportunity? Um, you know, again, and you've you've been in this field for so long. What's your go-to? Well, you know, I, I would say that I think it's important for people to go to conferences, fundraising conferences, because that's where you build relationships with people. It's a great, if you can get a chance to speak at conferences, it forces you to hone your skills, which is really important. For me, every five or 10 years, I like to do something outside of the field. I like to learn something that is not directly about fundraising. So I I had a transformational experience doing things at the Gestalt International Study Center on Cape Cod. I recommend that to anybody and everybody to learn something about Gestalt. It's fantastic. Uh, Before that, I had done something at Johns Hopkins on change management. I'm always looking for things I can do that are related, but are not directly about fundraising. And then to try to see how they wind together gives me a better base on which to make decisions. And there's so much to learn. There's so much to know. There are so many fascinating people to talk to. So I would encourage you to do both, both fundraising stuff and non-fundraising stuff. Well, it's no wonder you've stayed so relevant and vibrant through this long career because you are that lifelong learner and you're curious. And I just love that about you. So inspiring. It's fun to think back on it and think about, I'll tell you the most recent thing I'm doing. So I live here in New York City. So I've been taking improv classes. Really? Yes. I'm always the oldest person in the class. I am not. And it's fascinating. And I take it again, because I think it has a relevance to fundraising, right? To be in, in improv, you have to be very much in the moment. You have to, the key to improv is yes and. Yes, and everything is yes, and you have to be very much in the moment, no matter how wacky the things are that somebody's saying to you, you have to say yes, and and go with that. So it makes your brain a little more nimble. It's wonderful fun. I took level one improv twice, and now I've taken level two improv once. I'll probably take that again. 
So anyway, that's my twist. It's fun. So fun. All right. Last question. Yes. Andrea, knowing what you know now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self just getting started in the profession? Mm. Don't be afraid to ask for help. That's the advice. People made that possible for me before I fully understood it, right? People created that for me. People provided groups of people who were helpful. But I think when I was young, I was much more worried about whether I knew what I was talking about. And I didn't have to worry so much about it. I am more powerful when I don't know what I'm doing than when I do know what I'm doing, which is a curious paradox. Mm. And the young fundraisers listening to this, you are more powerful when you go to people and ask for help, right? They they want them to get on your side. They will want to help you. Now, that doesn't mean you can be an idiot, right? I'm not <laughs> advising that. But, you know, if you really want to learn things and you go to people who can help you learn them, you will learn and they will be happy that they have helped you and they will always feel like they played a little role in your career. And that's powerful. It's hard to know that when you're in your 20s and 30s. Yeah. It's easy to know that later. Yes. So believe it now. Believe, believe it, it now. Exactly. Believe it now. Believe it oh, now. Yep. So good. So good. Thank you for joining us, Andrea. Thank you for having me, Tammy. What fun it was to spend this hour with you. I always enjoy time with you. And I'm sure our listeners are raving fans of yours. If they weren't before, they will be now. (laughs) Just an old lady having fun, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to learn more about Andrea and the Capital Campaign Toolkit, we have included links in today's show notes for all the things, as well as links to other resources that we've talked about. So I just want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast and for continuing to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. Learn why fundraisers love using Bloomerang and grab your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips ebook at bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser. The link is in the show notes. That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag TheIntentionalFundraiser and tag me, Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community, where I go live twice a month with my members with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night, where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level. 
by teaching ways you can improve your development operations. Create a results-driven, donor-centric development plan. Strengthen donor relationships. Improve your donor retention rates. And build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program. And how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. You can learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com forward slash transformers. Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.